AVXL episode 153 was recorded on September 9th, 2021. The Matrix is back. Amazon has its own line of Fire TVs now. TCL 8Ks are shipping. A whole lot of thoughts on headphone and speaker burning and some advice on listening and so much more. Don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you, each and every one of you that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Your support helps Robert and I make this show. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patty Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. We are going to be all over the map in this episode, but we should probably start. I don't know who's more excited about this or terrified about this. It's coming. December 22nd, 2021. Distributed worldwide by Warner Brothers Pictures in theaters and on HBO Max via the ad-free plan. Or ad-free, as most people would pronounce it. Um, it's going to be on HBO Max for 31 days from a theatrical release. What am I talking about? The Matrix! Yeah. <laughs> Resurrections, baby. There is a trailer. I have watched it. <laughs> as have I. We're not going to spoil squat here. There are some interesting moments. If you are curious about the absence of certain characters, I suggest you search for them on Kotaku and make references to a certain massive multiplayer online game from 15 years ago. And that's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually really curious to see what Lana Wachowski does with it. Uh, longtime listeners will know that uh, I am a huge fan of The Matrix and The Animatrix and not a huge fan of the second and third Matrix movies. My irritation with those movies is almost as bad as Robert's irritation with Hobbits. <laughs> wow. That's a strong, strong statement right there, because I despise <laughs> those hairy-footed bastards. <laughs> oh, I hate that whole series. So I, I hear you with the last two. They may not be the particular pride and joy of anyone who's into the first one. I love them all, and I'm also a fan of sites like The Matrix Explained on YouTube, which mm. is really fun. Yeah. It incorporates all sources of all of the story, including the video games, the Animatrix, the movies themselves, yeah. theories, and that kind of thing. So if you're into that sort of stuff, yeah. It's a big world. Check out that YouTube I mean, channel, and I'll put a link to that in the yeah. show notes as well. But I, I checked out the whatisthematrix.com, which has been there. It is still there, and now it has been updated for the new movie. And it gives you a couple a of... a red pill and a blue pill. <laughs> a couple of interesting choices. I kind of dig. They worked with, I believe, YouTube. This is all... The, the video sequences are all featured on YouTube channels. And whenever you click on one of the videos, it incorporates the real time on your computer into the video itself oh, and, wow. and the person saying it to you, which is kind of just, just keep that in mind when they suddenly say what Terrifying. time it is. You glance down <laughs> at the clock and you're like, hey, wait a minute. That's right now. <laughs> I thought that funny, pretty clever, but there's <laughs> not a lot there. And I would love to talk about the trailer some more, but we'll give it a week and I'll, uh, yeah, I'll bemoan my thoughts of it i'm actually quite thankful there's not a lot that was really revealed it, it kind of leaves a lot of what the movie's even going to be about a mystery to me yeah. at least and i appreciate that 
a lot of talent in the movie. And also, uh, you know, if you are thinking about revisiting The Matrix, the 4K UHD transfers are spectacular. Oh, yeah. Um, they are gorgeous. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Must own if you are a fan. That is one of my favorite yeah. disc collections that I have. Yes. Cannot argue that. TCL 8K 6 Series TV is actually shipping in stores. It is. The 8K 6 Series, now available. I actually checked it out on Amazon just a few minutes ago mm -hmm. and saw it was sitting there. Not to be <laughs> confused with the 2021 4K 6 Series. Keep that in mind. If you really want to be accurate about this, take a look at the model number. The R648 is in reference to the new 8K Series. And the R635 references the updated 2021 4K series. Now, for the new 8K TVs, they are going to be 8K native resolution, still Roku-powered, and giving you the great interface. These TVs are also compatible, of course, with Dolby Vision, HDR10, and HLG. They provide that beautiful quantum dot color we've come to appreciate. And they also incorporate a THX game mode for your improved gaming, visualization, and hopefully latency as well uh the screens on these tvs i believe are they're 120 hertz native in terms of the refresh rate the mini led backlighting system will provide up to 240 zones depending on screen size for your local dimming action available in 65 and 75 inch screen sizes 2200 and 3000 respectively and if i'm reading the specs correct it shows it as having four hdmi ports three of them being hdmi 2.1 enabled and then one of those three being an eARC port. And the tough question really seeing the, at least the MSRP pricing that I have for the new 75 inch 8K6 series, would you rather have the 75 inch 8K6 series or a 77 inch 4K C1 OLED for roughly similar prices right now? Chances are the uh, TCL 8K is gonna get some nice price discounts in a short order as most TCL TVs typically do. But for a 75-inch screen at three grand, suddenly I am thinking OLED at those prices. I assume the TCL AK with its mini LED backlighting will be able to hopefully hit a decent amount of nits. I would be disappointed if it won't do at least 1500 But still, you're getting into OLED price territory at that, at least MSRP pricing for the new TCL AK6 series. And that gives me pause. That gives me pause in terms of what I would recommend to someone be it a 75-inch LCD or a 77-inch OLED. It really comes down to the room environment for me. And how much light and craziness are you dealing with in the room? Otherwise, right. almost a default selection just to take the OLED. Just for that amazing <laughs> contrast performance. Contrast! Yep. We've been talking a lot about ultra-short-throw RGB laser projectors. These are all tending to concentrate in this like $5,500 price range. We had a friend of ours install one, uh, which was a miserable experience because uh, he thought he would be able to run it in a room that actually had ambient light. It didn't really work out that way. It is an interesting product category. In the sort of the, the, the true RGB light engine, if you've been to Adobe Cinema, you've actually seen just about as good as an RGB laser projection can get because it's Adobe Cinema and, and you know, you're, you're looking at tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for that laser projection system in that room. $250,000 times two. <laughs> 
since they used. Well, two. there you have it. <laughs> it's a half a million dollars worth of RGB laser projectors that drive that picture, oh and that's why it looks as good as it does. With, like you mentioned, the incredible color, in addition to just superb contrast, black is black on a Dolby Cinema presentation. And that's what you really should be comparing anything claiming to be RGB laser. Uh, It would be nice to get something close to that in the home environment without spending, you know, half a million dollars on it. And we've talked about the Samsung Premier LSP9. That's about 5,500 bucks. That competes, I think Hisense's L9G at 5,500 competes directly with that. Hisense is also bundling a 100-inch ALR screen with that. Recently, Mr. Vincent Tio at HGTV Test was checking out an early sample of a JMGO U2 4K Ultra Short Throw. Uh, $2,600 including an ALR screen, $2,100 without... This is currently an Indiegogo project. I was going to say 1800 if you jump on the early yes. signups on the Indiegogo project. <laughs> exactly. Which always makes me a little uptight, in part because, you know, I spent $300 on a set of headphones I never got from a country, a company that uh, took in a lot of money but never shipped any product or shipped several products, shipped several sets of headphones, but were supposed to ship several thousands upon thousands. In any case, investor beware. What's going on? Because you found another one, the Bomacher Polaris. They're talking about a price of $2,700. Is this a massive price drop in this category? Or are these just direct sales places that are just radically hacking away at, at the profit margin on these uh, these products? I think you are right on both of those accounts. I would also say it okay. indicates that there is now a source of these RGB laser modules now ah. that they are comfortable about building into projectors. And if that's the case, that will become a commodity product. If we're seeing price drops into the, the mid to high 2000s, for an RGB laser projector. I would assume then that in short order, I'd say within the next six months, you're gonna see most of the other name brands that we associate with consumer projectors suddenly offering their own offerings as far as an RGB laser design goes. However, from everything I've seen and tested so far, including the Samsung Premiere with hands-on time, I've seen similar Hisense projectors and anything that's ultra short throw with a true RGB light source has been a color mess at best for standard dynamic range and HDR content. I would go so far as Hmm. to say that you should avoid anything labeled true RGB ultra short throw until they can get the color better under control. And until they can actually prove that, I, I don't care what the price point is, if you can't get the color to look right or to at least be reasonable with a couple of presets, then it's just not going to be worth it, no matter how cheap it is, unless you just need something for signage in a darker environment than you might typically want. <laughs> Samsung uh, updated the Terrace outdoor-rated TV. We mentioned that last week. It's one of the things that came out uh, from various companies who were making announcements that they would have made it Cedia, except they weren't at Cedia. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce this name. The Sayura outdoor TVs? The oh. Full Sun series? I will stick with that. Yes, the new, the all new full sun series. These TVs are designed for outdoor use. They are listed as being capable and having the cooling and the heating needed to function properly from negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit up to 140 degrees Fahrenheit. IP55 waterproofing, two-year warranty, available in 55, 65, and 85-inch screen sizes. They're claiming 2,000 nits on these babies, and they're proud to mention how much brighter they are compared to the competition. Speakers are not included. These are effectively monitors. 
that they've reconfigured and they claim they're compatible with any of your streaming products you'd like to connect. <laughs> However, uh, take a look at the price points on these and I'll put a link to it in there, but yay 65 inch for about 10 grand 85 inch for about 20 grand it better be a full sun series it better be sun compatible <laughs> and if you truly need something with a little extra oomph that just seems wow suddenly i'm like okay i don't know what samsung's charging for their terrace tvs but it's not cheap when you start getting into something that is truly outdoor rated the price is suddenly <laughs> just throw another zero on the end literally for this technology Moving to a radically different price point, uh, Amazon has launched their own brand of smart TVs uh, and variety, because I always love looking at variety, noted that uh, they're going to bring TikTok to Fire TV in the U.S. and Canada. Oh, and man. this is this is all about Alexa. Um, Fire TVs aren't new. Apparently, Best Buy sells like 80 of them. Uh, Fire TVs from Amazon or Amazon branded TVs are very new, like as of this morning. There's two different models, the Fire TV Omni series and the 4 series. The Omni series is all about A-L-E-X-A uh, hands-free. You don't need an A-L-E-X-A remote to use these. You can basically talk to your TV. Uh, they go from $410 for a 43-inch Omni series. Um, these are 4K, Ultra HD, HDR10, HLG, Dolby Digital Plus, um, $600 for the 55-inch version. When you want Dolby Vision added on, uh, you're looking at about $830 for a 65-inch TV, $1,100 for a 75-inch TV. These are not expensive TVs. We have no idea what the quality of the panels are going to be. For the 4-series smart TVs, which have an Alexa voice remote instead of the hands-free Alexa, uh, the 4-series start at $370 for the 43-inch version and top out at like $520 for a 55-inch version. Uh, if you have a TV you're happy with, they've made some changes to the Fire TV Stick 4K Max. That's a $55 Fire TV device. Uh, they're claiming a 40% more powerful processor. They now have Energy Star certification for the first time. They've integrated Wi-Fi 6. Um, if you're wondering what the more powerful CPU is for, they say, quote, smoother 4K streaming, cloud gaming with Amazon Luna, and uh, the Fire TV Stick 4K Max includes an Alexa, sorry, ALEXA voice remote. And uh, they'll do the, actually the TVs will also do uh, live PNP for your ring cameras. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, the other thing they've noted that they're going to be integrating Netflix is Play Something Shuffle, as in ALEXA, Play Something on Netflix, but that's not going to come until later this fall. The problem I used to have with the Fire TV products, uh, in particular the streaming sticks, was their incompatibility right. with certain services I wanted. <laughs> I'm assuming some of that's been hashed out by now. For a while there, you couldn't view YouTube on a Fire TV product without some hackery involved. And personally, I don't need an Alexa full-time on my freaking TV. Although every TV I have, I think, that I've purchased in the last couple of years has all of that built in. Right. I never use it. I never set it up. I would be super curious to see if any of these TVs can actually function unless you connect them to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. It has to work in some way. I would just be curious to see what the reduced functionality is. Does it take away anything from just the basic usability of the TV if you don't actually connect it to the net? Because <laughs> those prices are tempting for a lot of people. 
there's a lot of people that absolutely love the sort of ALEXA slash uh, Fire TV experience. I am not one of them. I will also point out that they, at least one of the screen capture picture displays they had on the Amazon.com listing for the TVs included uh, the Apple TV logo sort of at the top of the screen. In fact, I can see Ted Lasso on another one. They're certainly uh, dropping some hints. Uh, it's we'll coming. see what actually happens when they ship. <laughs> there we go. I, I caught an interesting couple of uh, tweets that turned in one turned into a very long conversation. I want to share them with everybody because they are all about uh, testing audio gear. And Dr. Sean Olive, who is uh, the senior fellow at Harman, um, he's a past president of the Audio Engineering Society. Uh, he's a PhD. He's he studies uh, the science of sound and how people listen, and and has developed the Harman curve we talked about in the last couple of weeks. He tweeted that he was watching a headphone YouTube channel, and the reviewer said that the Harman listening tests, which feature short listening, you know, basically they have people listen to a headphone for a short period of time and move to another one. Uh, the reviewer was like, "Well, they're flawed." Quote, because listeners do controlled multiple comparisons over the course of 30 to 40 minutes, whereas audio reviewers take two weeks to evaluate the headphone. And uh, Dr. Olive points out that one argument against this hypothesis is that humans adapt to stimuli over time and become less sensitized to differences and flaws compared to rapid multiple comparison when there is no time to adapt. Makes sense. Yeah, and it's funny because there's uh, several people jumped into this conversation and it developed into another conversation, which I'll get to in a second. But uh, I tweeted back, was I like to think that people have kind of their own built-in EQ that adapts to sound over time. It, you know, it rounds off the rough edges, if you will, uh, like a rock tumbler. You know, if you listen to one set of headphones for a few months and put on a differently tuned pair, the differences are incredibly stark. This is legit. This is not something I am making up. Uh, <laughs> you know, the longer you listen to something, the more your sound seems to adapt. I like what Chris Sinonen uh, tweeted. He said, it's why breaking is real. The speakers stay the same. Our brains adapt to the sound. That led to a conversation about burning in speakers that uh, Dr. Olive joined into on that one. And, you know, somebody was like, what about burning? And Burn-in, it's a funny thing, because if you take raw drivers and you do teal-small testing on them, these are the characteristics of a driver that speaker designers use to create the enclosure and the crossover and everything. GR uh, Research has a great article talking about driver burn-in. They've got a couple of speaker designers and one driver engineer, and I happen to know the driver engineer in question. Uh, he's done some earbuds, and he's worked on Sonos, and he's done some pretty crazy stuff with uh, X-Max on subwoofer designs. You can definitely have cases where the, the teal small parameters, you know, for example, uh, they talked about the, uh, the resonant frequency of the driver, FS, and uh, when you're looking at it in a formula, and they can, you know, lower several decibels. Dan Wiggins, the, the driver designer who was joining in the, in the, the article on grdesresearch.com, points out that they will see numbers change by like 20%. A lot of that's probably the spider breaking in. Both the speaker designers in that conversation pointed out, though, that depending on how the box is engineered, the enclosure is engineered, you may not actually be able to hear any changes in that. Audioholics talked about uh, speaker break-in. Audio Science Review did a set of Revell speakers for several hours and saw basically uh, no audible changes in the frequency response curve on those. You know, the kind of mic drop on that conversation was Sean Olive uh, rejoined the conversation later on in the day. And he said, uh, 
I'm 100% certain you can find examples over time where you may measure changes in a headphone or speaker. Materials, suspensions, how the speaker is stored, gravity, temperature, humidity can affect teal small parameters and possibly change the sound. He adds, I've investigated two products where claims were made by marketing that burn-in was necessary before listening to the product. One was our speaker and Infinity, and the other was an AudioQuest headphone. I have AudioQuest headphone I happen to be a big fan of. He says, we measured the products and made binaural recordings of the noise and music before and after burn-in. Differences in measurements and sound quality were negligible. The Infinity product manager was fired because of his uh, before science or BS. He also adds, I was extremely happy he left because science triumphed over marketing. We tore all the burn-in stickers off of the packaging. Is burn-in real? Yes, you can, you can use scientific instruments to measure changes in drivers over time. Is it audible? Probably not. Uh, and I had to dig into the web archive to find this one, but Till Hertzens, uh, who... Uh, is one of the people who kind of founded the headphone amplifier industry uh, and discrete DAC industry. Um, and it was a very early pioneer in improving the quality of, of uh, you know, the signal being fed to headphones and reviewing headphones. Um, he, at one point, ran tests on a set of AKG Q701 headphones. And he looked at the frequency response curve at five minutes, 25 minutes, one hour, two hours, five hours, 10 hours, 20 hours, 40 hours, 65 hours, and 90 hours. And the vast majority of the changes were under a decibel of the vast majority of the audible frequency. There were a couple that were more like, you know, 2 or 4 dB, but in very narrow audio bands. That might make a huge difference to you. I don't think, you know, having a 2 or 3 or 4 dB change at 12,500 hertz is going to be a radically uh, experience-altering kind of change to a driver. But the answer is, like, yes, drivers do change. Uh, Yes, you can measure differences. It you know if if the if the the you know, the speaker or headphone is well designed, it's probably not going to make a huge difference in the sound. Now you just need somebody to you know benchmark a headphone and then benchmark it again in ten years, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of tough to do. For an installation scenario, though, it's always good to at least test the equipment before you install it, just to make sure there's nothing too far out of whack. Uh, everything yeah. should sound the same, relatively speaking. Yeah, I've never considered, quote-unquote, burning in a set of speakers. More of just basic testing to make sure that it can do all the frequencies it's supposed to, make sure there's not a screw loose inside of the cabinet, basic stuff like that. Uh, But otherwise, I've never even considered it. It's just get it in there, make sure it was set up right, make sure it's connected right, make sure the product is solid, and then enjoy don't go too crazy yeah, but, with, oh, I need 90 hours on this before I, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm never going to poo-poo someone for, for saying, hey, I, w- I just want to give this like a solid eight hours of use before I even consider doing any kind of, you know, uh, critical right. listening. Uh, I get that if that's, you know, their methodology, but it, well, it's not going to be backed up by much in terms of actual yeah. science. <laughs> Science tends to disagree, but you know, it also, there's a lot we're still learning about, you know, the gap between your perception of a sound and what happens when your ears interact with vibrations from an audio source. Um, I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) I wait with bated breath. Headphones have come so far in the last 10 years. Uh, I'm kind of 
excited and terrified to see where they go in the next 10 years. Uh, one of the things, uh, there's a great article uh, Brent Butterworth did on the idea of slow listening. And he writes for one of the places he writes for, uh, soundstagesolo.com. Uh, he points out that this was part of a, a, a scientific paper, and he's afraid that it's going to become like, well, you have, to, you have to spend 40 or 100 hours listening before you judge our product. And the idea that you know, if you actually want to hear audible differences, those short, you know, those those short audio experiences moving back and forth between things makes them much more evident. Uh, you know, any Brent, I think, fears the idea that uh, marketing will roll up the idea of the slow listening. Just let your mind adapt to what we're doing. I just want to give a shout out uh, to uh, the Macintosh Labs. MX123AV processor, which now supports 8K video, or at least all of them uh, coming from the factory from September 2021 20, forward. They're doing 8K 60 hertz and 4K 120 hertz and refresh rates. <laughs> I was just highly amused that something that looks that vintage supports 8K video. Uh, this is an $8,000 AV processor. There's no amplification built in. This is not something the majority of our audience is going to be looking at. And I still wish they had a big blue meter on their Bluetooth adapter. Although I was laughing as a friend of mine was very upset that Macintosh actually did a Bluetooth device. Um, he thinks Bluetooth is beneath them. I told him to grow up. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, At T Beaver tweets at AVXL, time to upgrade my AV receiver if I can get one. What is your opinion on dry rack room correction? Thinking of new Onkyo TX-RZ50 with dry rack versus Yamaha Avantage RX-A8A. I have had very little uh, personal experience with Dirac in a long time, but the, their technology, the room correction technology is licensed by Arcam, Emotiva, NAD. It's in dedicated boxes from Mini DSP um, and uh, also in Yamaha. Most of my recent experiences with Odyssey and Denon AVRs. Um, short answer, T Beaver or T Bever, uh, is that people I trust like Dennis Berger and Chris Hynoden who are writing for the wire cutter and their AVR picks uh, have found it quote surprisingly good. You know, there's a Yamaha receiver that has joined Denon as their AVR reco for most people. Nice. The thing to remember is like just about any room correction can improve or screw up your sound if you do it right or wrong. Uh, the majority of them tend to not turn the subwoofer up as high as it should be. A little bit of selective uh, placement of bookshelves or soft couches or rugs in between the speakers and the seating position can often you know make a huge difference audible difference that you may want to explore before room correction but generally speaking i think most people are pretty happy with both odyssey and Dirac. there's a couple other ones out there but those those are the two that are going to be found i think on the most uh, products out there very cool i'm excited about it yeah I probably shouldn't say this because uh, I don't want to jinx uh, anybody out there looking for an AV receiver, but as problematic as subwoofer availability has been and as difficult as it was to find AVRs, uh, you know, in the fall time frame last year, so far, AVR seem to be fairly well available in the stores, in the channel, he says, as he clicks on a link, he <laughs> clicks on a link. And... Please be there. Please be okay. there. Oh, it's on add order. Well, it's on back order, but that's also the wrong ABR. So <laughs> hopefully, 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 hopefully you can find it uh, when you are ready to buy it. This sounds much easier than trying to buy a graphics card. I'll say that. Well, 
as I type in the right name in there. Let's take a look. Crutchfield. USA Omaha. Best Buy. All right. Uh, I've always appreciated room correction systems on every AVR that incorporates some form of basic check, too, for things like the wiring yeah. to make sure nothing's crossed. Or, oh, I plugged the speaker into the wrong output, and now I've got two of them crossed over, and that needs to be fixed. And usually in a graphical interface nowadays, mm -hmm. it's a nice bit of hand-holding if you're not 100% familiar with you know, speaker placement and setup. It's just one extra feature to take advantage of, and don't be afraid of it. Watch a video or two as well in terms of technique, in terms of your location of your microphone and things like that, of course. But it's not that difficult, and it can produce, like you said, surprisingly good results. <laughs> I'd even throw that in there yeah. for something like what Sonos does with their room tuning software that you use yeah. with iOS products. And that... It's not a dramatic difference, but I often prefer it. And they also provide yeah. a toggle switch to let you quickly go back and forth to see if you do like the way that that adjustment sounds or not. At some point, I gotta I gotta sit down and talk about Room EQ Wizard, but not today. <laughs> Where you can measure sort of the, the before and after. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. Let me let me figure out something intelligent and thoughtful to say about it. But it's fascinating to measure your room as you tweak things. I wait. One more tweet before we move on. Martia Bernathi, hopefully I'm saying that right, tweeted out, uh, Hyperion is a DIY alternative to Hue, much cheaper, and they reference AVXL 152. Um, it's open source. You can run it on a Raspberry Pi. I feel like you talked about this, and I had completely forgotten about it in the past, but there are a couple really good YouTube videos on it. And uh, if you want to read about it, you can go up to GitHub and search for the Hyperion Project, H-Y-P-E-R-I-O-N-P-R-O-J-E-C-T. Excellent. I mentioned, uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago, or maybe last week, uh, Chris Majestic. He is a reviewer of home theater products, including mostly projectors. But around his screen, he had did this very same setup, and he has a terrific walkthrough of a complete Hyperion configuration with the appropriate hardware you'll, you'll need, how to set it up, and how to make it look fantastic on a budget. Mm -hmm. This all started because of the price point of Philips Hue products. Over $500 you'd need just to light up a screen or behind your screen mm -hmm. in, a, in a compelling way. And it just seemed kind of ridiculous considering $10 Raspberry Pi later and <laughs> a couple of spools of RGB strips, and there you go. Wow, yeah. doctor, it's a little uh, bit more convoluted than that if for the DIY. A little more convoluted. But still, you can save a lot of money and get it done nicely. Dr. ZZS uh, was the link from that tweet. Hyperion-project.org is probably a better place to go if you want to, uh, rather than, not that there's anything wrong with going to GitHub, but uh, it might be a little more illuminating to go to uh, Hyperion Project. Hyperion-project.org. Yeah, it's kind of amazing what you can do with a Raspberry Pi at a little time. And in case anybody's forgotten out there, the whole idea of this ambient lighting is that you create backlighting behind your television. So it puts compatible lighting to the video on the screen and makes the transition for your eyeballs from the darkness of the room to the television. The idea is that it makes it a little less painful and or improves the quality of your video watching experience. It also just looks hella cool. <laughs> it's a neat effect. I think a lot of people would just appreciate it once you see it. True that. 
I'm going to have to actually try this out. I have plenty of Raspberry <laughs> Pi laying around, and it's about time I go shop for some RGB LED strips anyway. Amazon. Yeah. They're all on Amazon. Oh, my goodness. Uh, speaking of things that are nice when they work, HDMI CEC control of your AVR and television. Uh, for some reason, the back button was changing inputs on my AVR. My Apple TV remote uh, went haywire. I did two things. I rebooted the Apple TV, and I was being non-scientific uh, because around the same time I rebooted the Apple TV, I also changed at least one of the settings inside uh, of my Denon AVR. And I'm not sure which one fixed it, but one of them fixed it. And it was really nice to be able to use my remote without uh, changing uh, changing inputs on the AVR every other click. <laughs> that is, yes, that's a nice bug to work around for sure. I appreciate the newer TVs with terrific CEC support for the fact that yeah. on a wall-mounted unit, I can put my streaming product behind the screen and using the TV's infrared controls, it will pass that signal right to, to the device that's hiding behind the screen that it doesn't have a clear shot to that. Or if I had put, say, a product in a cabinet like a disc player, as long as my infrared can hit the screen on the TV, it can pass that signal along to the connected device. That just cleans up your look of your setup rather easily. Yeah. And Generally, that's enabled by default. It's pretty cool when it works. Cannot argue that. That's also a feature, CEC in particular, Consumer Electronic Control, yeah. is available on many, many motherboards I look at nowadays as well, especially really? anything with integrated graphics. That's kind of fascinating. It's kind of a feature that's everywhere, sometimes not enabled, but it's generally hiding somewhere <laughs> if you need that remote control. Compatibility goodness. Hey, if you've got a question for us, do us a favor, email ask at avxcel.com or tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or at avxcel on the Twitters. If you're looking for a hashtag, hashtag askavxcel works for us. And uh, I, uh, I thank you, each and every one of you that are listening to this. Uh, I also want to thank the crew at uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash avxcel. You make the show possible, uh, and we're going to kind of step up on our offerings to the patrons because I have not been good about that this summer. So keep an eye on patreon.com slash avxcel. Your inbox will have uh, at least one hangout, possibly two hangouts scheduled this month, and we'll try to get some more goodness for you at, uh, at patreon.com slash avxcel. Also, I'm just going to tease this for next week because I'm staring at the picture in abject horror. Uh, the SMS G50 from Ascendo, an active seismic 50-inch infrasonic subwoofer. I can't tell if this is an April Fool's joke or a legit product, and I will leave you that thought until next week. <laughs> Let's discuss <laughs> the specs of that next week. <laughs> it's amazing looking. You're going to need 300 amp service, Mr. Norton. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. All right. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.